Good afternoon, everybody. How very nice to see you all here. And, and I must say, I'm very impressed that so many of you have given up your lunch hour. This is the, I think, second in a series of platforms in this building, uh, in this bit of the National Theatre building and elsewhere in the building, which are celebrating, of course, the National Theatre's 50th anniversary. And some of the people who are, not any of the people here today, but some of the people who are um, taking part in these platforms actually can go back right to that 50-year-ago point. So there is a long history to discuss. And what we're here to talk about today is sound in the theatre, and particularly what we now regard as sound design. But one of the things that we should be touching on is when it went from being sound to being a branch of the design bit of theatre. And to talk about it, um, there are four very distinguished practitioners, um, two of whom I have worked with because they've both been associated with the National Theatre at different times. Um, Rob Barnard, on my extreme right there, is... Um, that's not a political judgment, Rob. Um, uh, <laughs> Rob was, at one time, head of sound at the National Theatre and is still here at the National Theatre but no longer as head of sound and is currently working on the NT Future project. Gareth Fry is also a sound designer and he will tell you about his own background. I'm not sure if you have worked. You ha no, you, well, you have worked at the National, of course, and indeed you have been working here this very morning, about which we shall <coughs> hear more. Adrian uh, Quartley is um, a sound designer who has actually not, uh, as yet, worked at the National Theatre. And what we shall look forward to hearing from her, to, um, amongst other things, is a perspective about what the world of sound design looks like not at the National Theatre. And finally, and certainly not least, on my right is Paul Grotish, who was um, uh, on the sound team at the National when I was first here, and has since gone on to have a very distinguished career as a freelance sound designer, correct? All over the shop. So you've got a wealth of experience here. And what I want each of them to do first, remembering to project, is just to um, tell us, each of you, if you would, a little bit about how you came to be specialists in sound. And the reason that I'm going to ask them that question is that I think it is true that nowadays, if you decide that sound design is what you want to do as a career, you can do it. You can find a course, you can learn to be a sound designer, and you can become one. But that was not so when, certainly when Rob started, certainly <coughs> not when I started in the theatre, there were not people who were specialists in quite that way, and they certainly weren't credited as such. And so, all four of these people have come into sound design from a quite wide range of different backgrounds, and I think it would be interesting to know what they were. So, as briefly as you can, please, dear friends, starting with Rob and oh. working <coughs> inwards. Um, briefly as I can. Okay, I think uh, the catalyst for me was going to see um, the famous production of Hair at the Shaftesbury Theatre in about 1963, uh, and seeing the sound operator in the distance. I was a teenager at the time, that kind of led me to Lambda, where I did a stage management and technical course, and I concentrated on sound there. That took me to theatre projects, where I worked um, with David Collison and others on, on musicals and as a, as a very junior technician. Um, 
<coughs> that took me actually via Salisbury Playhouse. Let's not forget Salisbury Playhouse. That took me to um, the National Theatre, which at the time was being built on the South Bank. I was working with four theatre projects, putting loudspeakers and stuff into the building, and I kind of stayed. And that was in 1976 um, <coughs> or <Yeah>. something. <coughs> so I've been here ever since. <laughs> Thank you. I just want you to notice that in what Rob said, he did not use the word design, but he did use the word technician. And I think that's one of the things that we might want to just <coughs> touch on, is how this particular skill, this craft, skill, art form, has evolved from being seen as something purely to do with technical issues into something that is regarded as an art form <coughs> in its own right. So, Gareth. Well, I started off uh, interested in sound, wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Uh, did some adult education courses as a recording engineer, uh, dabbled with that, wasn't very keen, tried some local radio, didn't really like that. Uh, then I really wanted to go to the Edinburgh Festival to see some uh, stand-up comedy, and a friend of mine had a theatre company who suddenly needed a sound engineer. So I discovered theatre, and uh, just uh, fortunately at that time, Central School of Speech and Drama launched the first uh, theatre sound design course, uh, so I enrolled in that. Uh, this was in 93, uh, graduated from that in 96, and then uh, launched myself into freelance sound designing uh, with a degree of engineering uh, to pay the rent in the early years. So it feels as though the idea of sound design as a specific aspiration for a, a, a job might be sort of early 90s when it starts so to creep yeah. into drama schools and, and uh, university courses as well, maybe, yeah? yeah? Adrian, what about you? Um, well, I started as a musician from the age of seven, playing instruments, and then someone introduced me to the idea of going to City University to do a modular music course, so I studied cello at Guildhall, uh, but it, I mainly went there because it did sound engineering, um, and from there I was then a radio producer for about six years, um, and I really, and that sort of taught me how to deal with presenters and uh, librarians' knowledge of music, different genres and things like that. Um, and then I had some friends that were working in dance and I designed a dance piece for them and just thought this is more fun than being in an office. Um, and I wanted to get creative with sound a little bit more than you could do with radio. So then I took a master's at Central in devised theatre going in as a sound design strand. And uh, as you say, from the beginning, I wanted to be a sound designer, really, and just use the technical to facilitate the creativity side of it. Um, and then after Central, I kind of just started working in Fringe and working up that way, really. Great, thank you. Paul. Uh, I, my inspiration was, uh, which I just worked out a, a year ago, was a, re a recording of Peter and the Wolf, which I listened to when I was a small child, which sort of um, taught me about illustrating music with sound and all sorts of things and a story and all that stuff. Uh, I then went, I did a co course, uh, I came from Holland, I did a course uh, in Holland where um, to be an instrument maker, that's a fine, fine mechanical instrument maker rather than a musical instrument maker. Uh, that was very kind of uh, uh, technical and, and I wanted to do more with people. So I started to look around a little bit and work to work with people and, 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 and artists I guess. Uh, and the, the next, the only opportunity really at the time was to go to Central to, to do a stage management course because that was a good basic training to get into theatre. There was no sound design course or anything like that. So in 79 I came to England and I uh, enrolled in Central School of Speech and Drama. 
Uh, I then left that. I worked in a recording studio after that for three years, uh, where I learned my craft as an engineer, as a recording engineer. And then in 84, I joined the National Theatre, when Rob was here, um, and just operated shows for uh, a good 10 years and slowly made a transition into sound, sound and, then, and then sound design by uh, being asked my opinion and, uh, uh, on, on various pieces of music and, and soundscapes. And, and that's how the transition came very slowly. I left in 2001. And I've since been a freelance engineer working, doing musicals and plays, dance, anything that's thrown at me anywhere in the world, really. So I'm very lucky to do uh, all the genres, so plays, musicals, dance, everything. Very lucky. Okay, so I think what you can hear from that is that sound in theatre is partly to do with being familiar with and indeed sometimes creating uh, different kinds of technology that can deliver what we would once have called effects, but which I don't think very many people any longer do refer to as effects. Uh, and it's partly to do with being a key member of a creative team. And I think it's worth just noting that um, certainly when I started in the theatre, which I'm afraid is a very, very long time ago now, but you know, it is self-evidently within living memory um, <laughs> there, um, there, there was no way in which <coughs> you would have seen s a sound designer's name credited on a poster, for example, or even in a programme other than with the stage management, probably, in that, in that group, by which I don't mean, by the way, to denigrate stage managers in any way. What I'm saying is that I think 30 years ago, perhaps um, even more recently than that, it was viewed as part of the technical uh, support uh, that a production might um, need and sometimes didn't need, actually. Some productions didn't have sound, did they? And now it's something which everybody as assumes is part of what the design team, you would expect to see in a design team. So can I ask maybe... Um, I, I, I might start with you, Adrian, just about working with other artists, coming from, you, you declared yourself to be somebody who wanted to be a sound designer, not, as it were, a technician in quite, you were a technician, but you wanted to move into sound design. Can you talk a bit about the relationship between um, a, a sound designer and the designer of the uh, physical artifacts of the show, and indeed with the director? And I know you've worked with Katie Mitchell, for example, haven't you? Yes, well, I think... Um, Who has a very particular take she on all Yes, that. but she, well, uh, for Katie, um, every, it's a holistic approach, so sound is in from day one, and uh, we all work together all the way through, and there's no question <coughs> of sound going away or coming back or anything. Um, but I think some role of the sound designer really s still can be to kind of sell the potential of sound to the rest of the team and to gain the trust. People are sometimes can be nervous of, is it going to ruin the text? Is it going to change the rhythm? You know, if you put music underscores under Shakespeare, would that ruin the, the, the rhythm of it? You know, so there's all of that. So you kind of have to gain the trust of the team whilst at the same time sort of demonstrating the potential. So taking their ideas and the director's vision and then how to realise that, but also push that. I feel like it's my job to push it further every time to in order for me to create a, you know, a real integrated sound design. Um, and 
it's hard, again, because the set designer is in a lot earlier than us, invariably, and so you arrive and you see the model box, and that's brilliant, because that can give you an idea of tone and style and the palette of sand instantly just by looking at it. But then where are the speakers going to go if it's a minimalist piece, you know, and we need to put spot effects in, like the Royal Exchange is a theatre in the round, and the, one of the shows I've done, all, all the set is on wheels, so it's very, very dynamic. So where are we going to hide speakers, you know? So we have to look at all of that really, really early on before I really know what the design is. I've kind of got to design the technical side. So that's, that's sort of part of the skill of kind of, you know, doing what you think you generally do and then hope that you've got enough budget to cover the things that come up during the process. So that's how it is, uh, in your experience, working today with the... The, not only with the range of technical uh, opportunities that you have, but also with the very different way that directors and designers think about staging, say, from a few years ago. And I was going to come to you, Rob, and just ask you to compare that with an experience <coughs> that you were talking about earlier of doing some work with Alan Aitborn some years ago, <coughs> which Paul also remembers, where yes. there was a slightly different starting point for what the sound was going to do? Yes, <coughs> I mean, I think when I started, I, I very much, f I think the world of the sound designer certainly didn't exist. One was there to provide a technical service. Uh, and I, I, I was talking about um, working with Alan Akeborn, who I think he himself was a technologist. He loves the technology. And um, the show that we were working on at the time was a play called View from a Bridge. And he clearly had an Can idea. Can everybody hear this? And he had clearly had a, a, you know, a very clear idea in his head um, uh, how he wanted to deliver this play. It, was in the, it happened to be in the Cottesloe, so there was very minimal scenic elements. And we had to create, we had to create um, downtown New York, Brooklyn, New York, with sound. And um, I, I think working with that particular director was a complete pleasure because he, he, A, he loved the technology, then he understood what it could do. I, I have different experiences of working at that time. This is a long time ago with other directors who, who really had no appetite for sound and thought it an encumbrance, really. And, you know, he might have got a dog bark or a lavatory flush. Uh, and, and that was it. So that's a... And that was how, how sound was viewed probably yes. quite <coughs> widely at that point, as, exactly. something, as an add-on. Yeah. 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 Um, I'm going to come in a moment to a very, very big issue about sound, which I know that Paul uh, has a lot to say about, and I'm sure the others do too, which is the relationship between sound and music, which you might think are, you know, more or less the same thing, but of course they're not. And the relationship between um, sound and music in a play where music is uh, incidental, so to speak, and between sound and music in a musical. Um, but before we do that, Gareth, um, do you want to add anything to what's just been said? Because I know what you've been doing this morning is working with emerging directors, talking to them about how they can get, presumably, about how they can get the <coughs> best out of the yeah. people who have the skills that you and your colleagues have. So what do you say to them about what they can expect and should expect from sound design? Uh, well, I, I think I said quite a lot this morning at quite some length uh, already. <laughs> but, um, Shall we have the highlights? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think um, what's, what's interesting about where, where sound design has, has come to now, and you know, it's, I've been quite lucky to sort of see the shift in sound design when, when I came into the industry was, you know, as, as Rob has described. And you know, I've been lucky to, to be here 
now when it's uh, a much more interesting place and we're regarded as a collaborative member of the team um, with you know opinions and 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 being you know part of the solution of, of, of how we uh, tell a story um, yes so that's what you tell them you tell them we can bring a lot to your realization exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, you know sound design is is one of the you know the, the elements of, of, of how we tell the stories that we tell it's a very powerful one whether it's through you know sort of simple stuff like giving time and location information or whether it comes to emotionally underscoring yeah. dramaturgical events in in the play yeah Paul th some of the shows you've worked on um, here and elsewhere have been very big and ambitious in lots of ways and uh, not necessarily just musicals, but other kinds of shows as well. How, how, do you f how do you fight the corner of the importance of not just of the sound design, but actually also of the quality of the experience that the audience is going to have? Because that can be uh, actually down to the quality of the equipment. It can be to do with, to some extent, how much money people are prepared to spend. <coughs> and so... How do you um, how do you fight your corner, particularly as a freelance? Well, I, I think I think that, that you have to f uh, gain the trust each time. I think I think uh, uh, the the creative world is one of those worlds there wh where you where you always as good as your last sound effect or your last cue or your last show. It's one of those worlds, so you always have to regain trust all the time. And I think uh, if I if I think of a show that I did here, um, His Dark Materials, which is a massive, great big show. Um, it was at a time when, when um, uh, uh, miking was ambiguous, uh, when uh, it clearly needed a lot of sound effect, a lot of imagination. Uh, in that case, uh, I'm not, I am not, I don't have, because of my background and where I come from in, in, the, in the business, I, I don't have the language really to discuss. Uh, in a bohemian way, if, you, if that makes any sense. With a director. Uh, wh whereas, whereas people are much better at that nowadays, thankfully, because I, I wish I could, but I can't. So I have, to, I have to get the vibe, keep my ear to the ground, find out what's going on, look at the set, listen to what's going on, talk to the actors, and then go into the studio and make something. And in that particular case, what I was doing, and, 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 uh, and this is what the National is and was at the time, and still is great at, is that you have a lot of people in the same building. Um, I was in the studio just playing, and, I, and what I used to do in those days, I used to just mess about lots of sound and record everything I did. So I started a recording at 7 o'clock, I put lots of reverb on things, <coughs> recording my own voices, scratching my head, doing anything what I wanted to do, slowing things down, recording everything, so I had a record of everything I did. And at some point, I hit something which was quite interesting. And I went up to the green room, Nick Heinle was there. I grabbed him and said, come and listen to it. And I didn't really talk to him. I just said, come and listen to it. And Nick Heinle said, that's what I want. And that's the end of the discussion. And, and that's, at the time, that's, that's kind of as far as the, dis the kind of bohemian discussion went <laughs> in, terms of, in terms of sound. And, uh, and the whole of that the soundscape, <coughs> in terms of the sound, sorry, the sound effect side of the show, I hate, I, I know they hate that kind of term. <laughs> but I'm, I'm afraid um, uh, it's, it's a simplistic term. Um, it, it, it was based on, on that one moment where he said, that's what I want. <coughs> and it was very abstract. It was very weird. 
I then went to talk to some of the actors and I said, look, you're playing a, 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 a bird or whatever it's called in Charles Montreal, what's it called again? They um, were demons. Thank you, right. Yeah. Demons, demon, then put the comma. And I said to Patricia Hodge, I said, what do you think you sound like? Um, and uh, when, you, when you come flying up to these people, um, uh, which was a virtual thing, you obviously couldn't see it, what do you think you sound like? And she made this sound with her mouth. And it was very useful to listen to her describing what she sounded like as a character. And that was the last discussion I had about that. So it was very kind of simple, and, and, and I went away, and I, I put all that together, and then I used it in the show. That was the kind of... The, the kind of and that's, that sounds like I'm making it sound simple. It's only sounding like that because I don't have the language to talk like that endlessly. I wish I did, because it, it would be much simpler if I could. If you think you might detect the sound of somebody underselling themselves, <laughs> you're right. But you are right. Um, but but actually, what this brings me to is something which, um, which I'd, I'd really like to hear from each of you about, which is the relationship between the sound that you are creating or helping to create and what the people who are listening to that sound are expecting to hear. Because one of the things that strikes me is that what has changed along with all of the stuff that you are working with and the way that you fit into your teams um, is the way in which people listen. Because of how they receive, all of us now receive sound, uh, it's certainly in the last 10 years, in a way which uh, I, as a young person, certainly could not. I couldn't put earphones and carry my music around in a little tiny computer in my pocket, and I couldn't have it at ear-shattering volumes uh, right there in, 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 my, in my own ear. And so I just wondered if each of you could just share any thoughts you have about the way that people's listening habits have changed the way that you work. Who wants to start? Gareth? Yeah, I'll start. Well, I, th I think one of the main changes in our, uh, in our audiences have been how much influence film and TV have had on them, as you know, in terms of having a, a much richer language sonically than, than, than theatre has had at certain times. And so we've, you know, I think the audience are a lot more sophisticated uh, with their expectations of what they're wanting to hear, whether it's <laughs> The, the number of layers of sounds to the use of surround sound and, and things like that. So I think, I think our audience has become used to having a much richer experience of sound than maybe audiences 30, 40 years ago. Had. And is that, is that about content and about volume and proximity, or is it more about one or the other? I, I think in that respect it's... Uh, partly, mostly about content. I think there's a degree of volume. You know, there's a lot of things you can achieve in with recorded mediums, with film and TV, where you know you can you know turn your TV up as loud as you want and, and get the performers' voices to be as loud as you want. Which uh, in a theatre there is a, you know a distance, a divide between you, which uh, can't be mitigated unless it is. Uh, done by... Or can it? Well, exactly. Okay. Well, <laughs> this is very interesting because what, what Gareth's describing is something which is much, much closer and much more direct and much more immediate. When Rob and I were here 
in the early 80s, the kind of soundscape we made was quite distant. It wasn't in your face. It was much more to support what was going on. View from the bridge, which is a brilliant sound design by Rob Barnard, although you'll never say it is a sound oh, design. It was a fantastic. And, mm. and, and I still remember it, but it was very ambient. But it was exactly right. What's changed, I think, is that the sound effects become much more upfront. And specifically, just to go back to dark materials, where everything was very cutting, very loud, very kind of, you know, it was an Olivier, what I call Olivier <laughs> moments, big, loud uh, uh, statements, theatrical statements. What, I, what we then decided to do was to mic it, because then you're bringing all those sound effects forward, then you've got to bring the voices forward. I don't mean that as, oh, God, now we're bringing the sound effects forward, now we've got to bring the voices forward, because <laughs> of course then what you get, something which is incredibly exciting. It all comes closer, <coughs> and it becomes really, really exciting as a design <laughs> element. And, and it worked very well, I think. But that's the result of it. So the miking kind of goes hand in hand with that in the big theatres, in my view. In my view. Well, Even if it's not necessary. I'll come to you in a moment, Rob, but I'd just like to ask Adrian about, about that in relation to some of the more, um, perhaps smaller scale, perhaps more experimental kind of work that you've done, where, you know, maybe noise isn't actually quite what you're after. You're after something uh, rather more um, nuanced yeah, and I mean subtle. So what do listening habits do in respect of what your practice? I think in small experimental spaces it, you can immerse the audience in an experience and so therefore this closeness is fantastic. You know, you can do very subtle, low things or you can stick them in the face with it at a certain point if you want to create an effect or you can surround them with things. And I, I think, I don't particularly say, oh, I wish, hope we, wish we could ready mic everything so that we could underscore everything. I can, I mean, in a smaller scale theatre, I can get away with underscoring stuff without radio micing up the actor, which is the best scenario in my mind, because then you've got the more real sort of theatre experience. But I do think in terms of content, um, one thing I find is what really excited me about theatre when I was younger was the combination of sort of hearing contemporary music, and I suppose I mean pop music, mixed with the language of, you know, movement. And th that combination together, and even with speech, is so exciting that I kind of feel like the way of getting the next generation into theatre is to be looking at the culture that's going on around. And I feel that sometimes theatre can be very isolated from what's actually going on in the real world. And with, especially with new media and everything like that, you can access music very quickly, and then we've got a soundtrack to our lives. So I think it's important to, if relevant, of course, you know, uh, the contemporary plays with contemporary <laughs> music can really help relate to an audience. So, Rob, just picking up that point and extending it, but because of your long experience in this in this building, which was purpose built uh, relatively recently, and actually threw up over the first 20 years of its life, some very obvious problems, particularly in the Olivier, mm. about uh, acoustic and consequently audibility. Adrian was talking there about radio miking actors, which is extremely contentious in certain, in certain situations anyway. Do you, how do you see, with all that experience here, that the relationship between performers and the people who are watching them in terms of what they hear? Mm. Well, I, I think there are a number of... I, I don't really want to get into the whole sort of Olivier acoustics No, no, issue, no not, but, not specifically. But, but um, no. I, I know sort of talking to colleagues very recently um, about um, audibility, uh, not, uh, not only in the Olivier, actually, uh, I, I across the theatre generally, 
And sort of one of the things that are sort of emerging, and that this won't come to a surprise to anybody, of course, is that I think people are much lazier in terms of their listening ability nowadays. They don't actually feel as though they have to listen, which is a challenge to us in the sound fraternity, community, I should say. Um, I think um, my ex personal experience here at the National is that we've sort of been through a, a variety of um, arcs, if you like, and there was the, 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 the moment when... Um, we, competed, we were competing with a lighting team because of all their frightful noisy lights. So we were competing with a very high level of background noise, which, which was one thing which we had to deal with. I think um, in, in, there, was a, there was a director here for, for some time who, who really felt that the only way to overcome audibility issues was by using radio mics, and, and that was his view. And every show that he did in the Olivier was a radio mic show. And our current director, when he arrived, um, was determined not to do this. And he felt that there should be a solution to sh solutions, whether they were technical or otherwise, to ensure that um, the National Theatre had good audibility to every seat. And um, I think one of the key ingredients to that, actually, at the time, was um, aside from a, some small amount of electronic enhancement and some dealing with the natural acoustics of the spaces, was actually to get a really good voice coach. And, uh, <laughs> and, and now and we're I mean, in other territory. We are in a absolutely. different territory. I yep. know I shouldn't go there. But, no, no. But that was that it has been the solution actually. In the last ten years, we haven't had those problems because we've dealt with the, the, the space. We've we've maybe we've considered more the scenic design because you can't just expect an actor to stand in the middle of an enormous open stage with reflective surfaces and expect to be heard. So we've dealt with that, and we've got actors who are really well trained. So. Um, that's yeah. my view on but that. The, but the, but the, the gentle um, uh, manipulation or enhancement of a whole environment, <coughs> whether it's a small theatre or a big one, is often the job of a sound designer. Indeed. And in order to do that, he or she needs to understand the technology. Uh, and also uh, the technology and, and actually the physics as well. Uh, I mean... Yeah. And that was a big problem uh, uh, before, because what used to happen was uh, 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 reinforcement as a result of people not being able to understand what was being said. And I mean understand rather than hearing, because everybody can hear me, but if I talk that way, some people there might not understand what I'm saying. So it's a very, very big difference between hearing and understanding. Mm. Mm. Uh, 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 it, uh, one of the biggest issues was that the, it, the radio miking in general was given such a bad reputation by it being an afterthought often. In other words, a, a, a show would be put on, an actor would stand on stage, either badly blocked or speaking badly or, or, or with the music being too loud, uh, and the director or the producer would say, Do something! And believe me or not, that happened to me more than once. And so what would happen, because there was then, you would then say, well, can I have some money to put speakers in? They said, no, there is no money. Do something now. And N-O-W, now. And um, literally, I'm not joking, that's exactly what happened word for word. So what you would then have to do is you'd have to turn your sound effect speakers, which were facing upstage, into PA loudspeakers. So the voice would come out of the speakers. You would just sort of cheat them downstage a little bit to try and make them sound like they were, they were facing the audience. And it was, of course, dreadful. And as a result, the radio mic technique, technique as such, had a very bad reputation. So a lot of people said, I am not going there because it sounds dreadful. And what we did specifically with Trevor, when I was doing Trevor's shows, 
uh, what we were doing travel shows, I should say, is we put in a, because I've been doing musicals, and my view was that if we're going to do, uh, 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 my first, being a techie, and originally, my first view is that people need to understand what was, was being said, full stop. That's my task, my job, my brief. Secondly, if we're going to do it, we have to do it in the same way and apply the same techniques and attention to this as we do with musicals, where it's normal to apply a large amount of money and time. So we have to put a big, large distributed sound system in, not just a speaker there, just because that's all the money we have. So we're going to do it, we're going to spend the money. And that was always a struggle, because we had to find a lot of money to do that. But everybody was radio mic'd. There was a, a radio mic operator who wasn't just putting the mics up, leaving them up. It was, it was like what's called line crunch. So every line was put up, taken down again. It took a long time. And when it was found out that we were doing this, we had been doing this for two years. And I was on front row because what happened was, uh, sorry. Front row, the radio program. Talking about uh, I was, uh, we were given, uh, we were, we were, we were um, uh, uh, somebody told the press that we were doing this. And, and the press office was, was given a request for Trevor to go on to, onto the radio and explain himself. And Trevor said, Paul, you deal with it. <laughs> so, so front row rang me up. And I then said, look, uh, because this was as a result of a show we were doing at the time, and we had been doing it for two years. And I said, actually, we've been doing it for two years, at which point the presenter said, well, there's no story here, and put the phone down. <laughs> Um, because we had been doing it properly for two years. So really, so, so yeah, stop me, up to date, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not trying please to stop you. Go just, on but you've, you've, we've, we need to get, we need a little bit of time for questions, and we've, we've, you've, you've actually touched on the one thing we haven't quite covered, which is this relationship between sound and music. I mean, you're talking about using techniques which have been refined uh, through the evolution of musical theatre and then brought back into non-lyric theatres yes. so that it could be used very delicately. And each of you must, at, all, at various points in your lives, have had to work with composers who either had a particular idea about how they wanted their music to be heard, or you were the composer, in effect, because you were using sound as in, in, a, in a, a lyric way. So... What, what, for each of you, or perhaps, well, I'll start with you, Adrian, what, what, where do music, because you are a musician, where do music and sound overlap for you? Um, well, my definition, really, of what I do is I would say primarily I was a creative sound designer, so that would be creating soundtracks, where relevant, of course, uh, using existing material, and when I have a composer hat on, I would define that personally <laughs> as when I'm generating the material that I then make the soundtrack from, essentially. Um, and where I've worked with a composer, in some instances, say on Katie Mitchell's show, I've taken some of the composer's pre-recorded music and manipulated that as a sound designer. And we've also had his composition stuff played out in the way that he wants it. And then he's let me have a little window in, in another area where we've played with it and, and, and that sort of keeps the same tone and timbre throughout and the same palette of sounds. So we're not sort of shoving extra things in here where the sound designers had a go and then, you know, where the composition is. So it's kind of a, it is a, a grey line and I think it's controversy tr tricky as well because obviously you can get employed as a sound designer composer for the one fee. <laughs> so that's another discussion. So you have yeah. to be that's careful with uh, because composition, in my mind, takes a lot longer than sound design, yeah. and it's a different job because you tend to go away and create it and come back in the room. 
Whereas for me, sound design is being in the room and present, but you can't necessarily compose in the room yeah. on the fly necessarily. Maybe <coughs> other people can. But. Gareth, mm. uh, where, where, does, where does this <coughs> impact on your <laughs> Well, I think, I think there's a, a, a big, very thick grey line between sound and music. And, you know, as a, as a sound designer, I consider myself responsible for, for everything the audience hears, whether that's the music or the sound. Um, and yeah, likewise, I work in many circumstances where there isn't a composer and, and the creative decisions about the music, the choice of, selection of, editing, uh, fall to me to, to work that out with the director. And sometimes that's about work with a composer and establishing a working relationship with them um, and, and working out how together we're going to tell the story. And, and you know, saying earlier, you know, that, um, you know, quite often the composer and the sound designer are, are kind of negotiating about who's going to do what for what moment. You know, there's a big crescendo at the end of Act One. Are we going to do that with music or are we going to do that with sound? Are we going to do the scene changes with music or sound? Are we going to do the underscoring soundtrack um, with, with music or sound or, or in all those circumstances with both? So it's a, it's a sort of constant negotiation in a joyful way. Yes, <laughs> in a complimentary way. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm going to ask if we can have a bit of light on the audience now, um, so that uh, some of you, if you have any questions, can ask them. We've got about 10 or 12 minutes, so it's not going to be enough for a lot of questions, so I'd be really grateful if you could keep them short, not least because I'm going to have to repeat them for the benefit of the recording, and I shan't remember if you've asked a very long question. So. Um, can I see any <coughs> hands? I'll just try and get an idea of how many there might be. So far, we're d absolutely at absolutely zero. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've got one here. Can I just see any others? Two. Okay, we'll start here and go there. Yep, and three. Yep. For the benefit of the tape, that the question was about how the choice is made between the use of live musicians or pre-recorded music. And um, we were just saying that it can be sometimes financial and sometimes choices of another kind. And I think I'm sure you guys would be able to comment on the mm. technology which allows a mixture of both now in a much more fluid sort of way than it would have done before. Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot more crossover before, you know, in, in previous years it was one or the other. Uh, now increasingly um, live musicians are playing alongside recorded elements or along to click tracks. Uh, there's a lot of you know, and it's one of the bizarre things I find is that, you know, one of the main benefits of having live musicians is that they're able to respond differently and play differently according to how a performance is going. But increasingly, mus live musicians are asked to record to, um, uh, play to a, play along to a metronome click that's in their headphones so that uh, the various technologies can synchronize to the, the beats in the music, whether it's video or or some other scenic automation so that they all go in the right place. So we sort of uh, increasingly lose the main benefit of live musicians uh, as technology develops. And Paul, in, your, in the world of, of big full-scale musicals, there, there are large bands, or lar not as large as they used to be, but there are large bands of live musicians and 
and music which is synthesized or recorded or whatever keyboard stuff recorded stuff also click stuff vocals on the vocals click but it's generally done because uh, if you for instance have a big number big dance number um, uh, and everybody's knackered at the end and then suddenly they're they're required to do a big button what's called a button at the end of the number where everybody's going like that and they're actually too tired to sing at that point we will we will put in a, uh, a click track and pre-record the vocals just to give it some extra boost. But uh, I've not done a show... Tricks of the trade. But I've not done a show for a long time where there's been a whole song pre-recorded. So just um, so that, that it's a bit of a myth, actually. Uh, some, some shows do it, but I haven't done it for a long time. Uh, now, I think there was one here, but I can't remember who's... Yeah. This is a question uh, uh, th that is very, that is very technical. If these guys don't understand it, how do you think I feel? But it is about using motion sensors, I would imagine, in order to create a sound or musical scape live whilst the performance is going on. Is that what you're asking about? Yeah, it might be yes or no. Any experience? He won't, <laughs> he won't just say yes or no. He doesn't do that, Gareth. <laughs> <laughs> it's, nev it's never a simple yes or no. no. Um, uh, yes and no. Um, uh, I've, I've done a little bit of um, performer-generated noise soundtracks. So I've, I've, I've most recently worked with a dancer called Colin Dunn, uh, who used to be uh, lead of River Dance after Michael Flatley. Uh, and he does more his own work, which is more experimental. And we've sort of experimented a lot with the sounds he makes with his feet and uh, as he dances, generating soundtracks and that sort of stuff, but I've not done anything directly to motion tracking. It's really interesting, you know, because this is, as much as I do big musicals where everything is done in a certain way, th this is fascinating, this stuff, because this is where the real creative sound design element is at its root, is, is when you're working directly with somebody who's, done, who's doing something they've never done before. It is fascinating stuff. And that, that kind of technology is so interesting. We, I, I very well, don't get a chance to do it very often. I, I guess none of us do, but it, it is very interesting, this stuff. Adrian? Um, well, funny enough, I just recently did a brief introduction to a visual programming language called Max MSP. And yeah, definitely, which basically means you can control anything. And definitely like to stick my cello through that and <laughs> control stuff. There you go. It's, it's really interesting. I think. Who is the singer who's developed the gloves? Oh, um, uh, 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 no, no. Um, he was here. I want to say Imogen Heap. Is that who I mean? <coughs> no, she's an actor. I'm talking about no, somebody. She's 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 a she's a singer, composer, and she, I know because she worked recently at the Roundhouse, and she's developed uh, gloves which are, which mean that she can actually create the sound by yeah. creating different yeah. shapes in Been the around air. For so a while, there's a lot of stuff. Out yeah. there, isn't yeah. there? That that that's helping to make that immediate live experience happen. Yeah. Um, if we're very quick, we'll get two more questions in. So, who? Um, I think there was one other in this sort of area. Oh, there's one here. This is a question about whether we are condemned forever to loud noise, <laughs> or whether we might retreat into silence. Even. Who wants to pick that one Not up? Me. <laughs> Not Take Rob. That one. <laughs> <laughs> well, so a loaded actually, question. Yeah, this, I think this is genuinely a question about the evolution of the nation, the notion of sound design, isn't it? So, Paul, they're have a quick word, and then I'll come to. They're Gareth. all techniques, okay? They're all things that we use to tell the story. Sometimes we have to make loud noises. Sometimes we have to make silences. Some people are better at using silences at the right time. Some people are not very good users, and the other around. But they're just techniques. They're not to be overused. They just—it's just like 
using a float mic or a radio mic, they all have their use in theatre in order to, to tell the story. That's what sound design is all about, making those choices. Whether I don't think it's to do with whether it's a phase or anything. It might be a fashion thing, and we might be experiencing a bit of a peak, but actually, though they're all techniques that are here to stay, and thank God they are. I'm very glad they are. Gareth? Yeah, um, likewise. Um, yeah, I think you know, we have a, 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 an aesthetic at the moment, um, as, as with all these things that will change and develop, new techniques, new technologies will come around. So we'll probably have a new phase of something else um, in, in, in the next few years, who knows. Um, and yeah, I, I, yeah, I think sometimes sound can be used uh, as a bit of an elastoplast. I've, you know, I've worked with, 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 with on productions that where things have not been going so well, and it's not been felt that there's a way out of that. So sometimes we are employed to to cover up that fact Surely with a, not. a sonic elastoplast. <laughs> and yeah, some some yeah, sometimes that can result in a perception of things being excessively noisy or um, yeah. Distracting. Yeah. Yeah. But sometimes it's distracting. Adrian, do you want to add anything <laughs> to that? No, I just think it, it's a, probably a fashion cultural thing, but I think that we do do quiet shows sometimes, don't we? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I <laughs> would just say I think you need to ask yourself about what people are listening to, not just about what they're being given. Yeah. The, it, it, it's, it's how people hear as well as how sound is created I'm in the I theatre. Have, I, have, I have argued in the past when not to use sound as well. Yeah. Yeah, I do oh think God, it's yes. part of my yeah, God, yes, remit yes, yes, to yes. sort of, you know, to, to say I don't think we should do this with, with sound, whether it's, you know, m making a sound effect, doing a sound effect live that, that would otherwise be recorded or, or, or just, you know, uh, arguing against using sound as a solution if, if I don't feel it's the appropriate. I, talk, I always talk directors out of doing farts because <laughs> <laughs> because you can't do a good sound effect of a fart, and you can't do them live, and you can't do a good fart bag. So uh, uh, my aim is always to talk them out of it. That's my. That's my. <laughs> I'm <laughs> tempted to stop the show right here because I don't think it's going to get better than that. Th this is a question about the physical effect of sound on audience members, on listeners, and in particular, I think you're talking about low decibel. Yeah. Or, lo or low frequency, I think. You probably mean low frequency, do you not? Yeah. Uh, and and whether, you whether you use sound to produce a particular physical effect in your listeners, apart from bursting their eardrums, which can, you know, sometimes be an effect. I think, yeah, occasionally, you know, in an installation, sort of studio space where you can immerse the audience. I, I think if you need or want to unsettle the audience, then using low frequencies as a possibility. You can loosen bowels doing it. Oh! <laughs> I don't know how the tone of this has gone right down. <laughs> this <Daily> is terrible. It's <laughs> part of our daily life. Yeah. There's a, a lot of sounds you can do at the higher ends as well, sort of very high-pitched mm. whines that yeah. can sort of create an unnerving effect that you're sort of not really aware of as an audience member, but it has a emotional effect on you as an audience uh, member so yeah. I think there's there, I'll give you another trick of the trade for whoever the students are out there I, if you're for instance doing an explosion uh, in uh, for instance Olivier is a classic uh, place where you want to do this if you're doing an explosion uh, if you go and pull an explosion off, off a, an archive or sound effect it usually doesn't have the bottom end as we call it 
it doesn't have the kind of that kind of impact, which you do have with an explosion in real life. You feel them. Uh, and what I used to do is I would take a microphone and pop it, so I go into it, and then line it up with the beginning of it, and send that to the bass bins for whoever. I think there's some students up there; they'll probably understand what I'm talking <laughs> about. And you'd get both of them together, and then you get that kind of chest effect. And theatrically, that is what tells the story. It's it's the immediacy of that sound is what tells the story. So the answer is. Yes, because that actually enhances the, the, the experience of, of understanding the story. Do you want to add anything to that, Rob? I, I don't think I could add anything to Paul's <laughs> comments so, there. So <laughs> the answer is that uh, you are being manipulated by <laughs> these guys you pay all for the time. That's what you pay your money for. Um, <laughs> I'm afraid we have come to the end of this session, which I suspect we could have gone on a great deal longer with it, but uh, I've had to shut it down because Paul so badly lowered the tone earlier on <laughs> that we couldn't really go on. But um, thank you very much indeed for being here. Thank you for your questions. I'm sorry we didn't have time for more. Thank you to all of our guests and um, enjoy your afternoon.